Welcome to El Petróleo es Nuestro, Episode 2, Revolución. I'm Brandon Seal. In the last episode, oil exploded onto the Mexican scene, literally, as some of the largest gushers in the history of the world came online between 1908 and 1921 along Mexico's Gulf Coast. The benefits, however, accrued primarily to foreign capital, as Mexicans were mired in the bloodiest war in the history of the Americas. This war, namely the Mexican Revolution, warrants some attention. If the American Revolution is satisfying for how neatly the good guys and bad guys line up, the Mexican Revolution is deeply unsatisfying because of the impossibility of imposing a moral narrative on top of it. Soldiers and generals change sides so frequently that the question, who are we fighting for now, becomes a running joke in the great novel of the Mexican Revolution, Los de Abajo. The 1910 Mexican presidential election saw Porfirio Diaz standing for his eighth term as president against the young, idealistic Francisco Madero. Madero came from one of the wealthiest families in Mexico, yet voiced the modern democratic and populist ideals that he had picked up in the course of his travels through Europe and the United States. Politically, he had something to offer pretty much all Mexicans, not least of which was the fact that he wasn't Porfirio Diaz. When it became clear that the election was turning against him, Porfirio resorted to extreme measures. He had Madero imprisoned and quickly announced himself the winner of the election by a suspiciously large landslide. But this was too much. At long last, Mexico rose up against Porfirio, and revolution broke out across the land. The stability of the Porfiriato dissolved within a year. The revolutionary factions rallied around Madero, who had returned from exile in San Antonio after escaping prison. By the end of 1911, he had ascended to the presidency and sent Porfirio into exile himself. As Porfirio left, he reportedly said, Madero has unleashed a tiger. Let us see if he can control it. He couldn't. Reactionary elements assassinated Madero two years later for taking things too far, just as the radical wing of the revolution had turned against Madero too because he wasn't moving quickly enough. With Madero's death, the nation was plunged into four years of chaos. Bosses like Pancho Villa, Emiliano Zapata, and many others rose to prominence only to be unceremoniously eliminated in their turn, either by bullet or by buyout. Despite the bloodshed all around them, the oil companies actually experienced very little disruption to their activities. There were incidents, to be sure. E.J. Sadler, Jersey Standard's head of Mexican operations, was robbed and left for dead. Man camps were occasionally overrun, and workers were, unfortunately, caught in the line of fire several times. But it could have been much worse, and it was the general practice of the revolutionaries not to mess with the oil companies. Part of this was undoubtedly due to fear of provoking a U.S. intervention. We shouldn't forget the U.S. occupation of Veracruz in 1914, or the punitive expedition against Pancho Villa in 1916, or the generally suspicious eye that the U.S. cast toward Mexico after the 1917 Zimmerman telegram, wherein Germany offered to return to Mexico the American Southwest in exchange for their entry on the side of the Central Powers in World War I. But the relative tranquility of the oil fields was also due to the fact that, though meager, the taxes and royalties collected from the oil companies were the most reliable revenue stream available to the Mexican government during the period. No, the challenge to the oil companies came not from revolutionaries, but from lawyers. In 1917, a constitution emerged from the turmoil of the Mexican Revolution and contained the following Article 27. Section 1. The property of all land and water within the national territory is owned by the nation, who alone has the right to transfer this ownership to individuals, private property being a privilege created by the nation. Section 2. 
All natural resources within the national territory are the property of the nation, and private exploitation may only be carried out through concessions. Now, of course, this clearly contravened Porfirio's 1884 law and immediately called into question the validity of the oil company's properties, something that did not go unnoticed by the oil companies or their governments. The oil companies did not immediately protest, however, opting instead to wait and see how the new provision would be applied while relying on diplomatic channels to push for official recognition of their pre-1917 holdings. When President Álvaro Obregón took office in 1920, he promised not to apply Article 27 retroactively, but he also stopped short of outright ratifying the pre-1917 holdings. Yet as oil discoveries popped up elsewhere in the world, such as Venezuela and Iran, Mexico's share of revenues from production began to look paltry. Further, the 1920s saw the rapid growth of a domestic market for refined products in Mexico, from 1% of total Mexican production in 1920 to almost 40% by the end of the decade. Mexico suddenly had a real need for hydrocarbons in their own country. And lastly, Obregón had slowly but surely quelled the remaining revolutionary factions, so by 1923 was sufficiently powerful domestically to turn his focus on the oil companies. Obregón offered to acknowledge the validity of the oil company's pre-1917 holdings only if they would accept an incremental tax on crude exports. This tax would serve a dual purpose of incentivizing oil companies to prefer Mexican markets for their products, but also of generating revenue off of a resource from which the Mexican government was realizing very little benefit. The proposed tax was not extreme, but the oil companies were already pressured by falling international oil prices and feared setting any precedent that would allow countries to retrade the commercial terms under which they had been enticed to invest. As such, they responded to Obregón's tax severely. They choked back production and shut off exports entirely, starving the Mexican government of what little revenue they were currently realizing. Obregón gracefully backed off both on levying the export tax, but also on officially recognizing the pre-1917 leases. Inasmuch as he appeared to have lost the battle, he had actually moved the bar. Before 1923, Obregón's support for the pre-1917 holdings was assumed. Now, it was unclear. The oil companies realized the precariousness of their position, and so called in the U.S. State Department. The State Department respected Obregón, and saw in him someone who, finally, might be able to stabilize Mexico. So they took the opportunity to normalize relations with their southern neighbor by way of a grand bargain. The agreement which emerged in 1923 would take on the name of Mexico City's Avenida Bucareli, where the agreement was negotiated. It secured reparations for U.S. property damage during the revolution, resumed Mexico's payment on their external debt, and enshrined the oil company's rights to leases taken prior to 1917. The qualifier to that last provision, however, was that in order to make the oil company's properties comport with the new Mexican constitution, they were converted from fee-simple holdings to 50-year government concessions. Though the oil companies were not pleased, the move would have simply brought their Mexican concessions into line with international practice and would have granted them legal certainty around their investments. You can probably sense that something's not going to work out here. It didn't. Though the Bucarelli Agreement was signed by both the U.S. and Mexican presidents, it was never ratified by the U.S. or Mexican Congresses. As such, when President Calles succeeded Obregón in 1925, he indicated that he did not feel bound by it, and so renewed battle with the oil companies. Tensions would rise so high in 1926 that Calles would order a young general named Lázaro Cárdenas to the oil fields to prepare for their confiscation, planting perhaps the seed of an idea that would have 12 more years to germinate. In 1926, however, 
the Mexican Supreme Court broke the standoff, and they did so in favor of the oil companies. They invalidated the Bucarelli Agreement's provision converting the oil company leases to concessions, describing this as an illegal taking of the oil company's legally acquired rights. The Supreme Court decision put the oil companies in the best position they had been in since 1917. And Callez didn't fight it. Indeed, he may have been grateful for the cover that had offered him to drop the issue. But also, by this point, the oil industry had begun to decrease in importance to the Mexican economy. By 1932, the oil industry's contribution to Mexican GNP would fall to 2% from 7% a decade earlier, and would fall as a share of government revenue to 11% from 22% over the same period. And Callez had other problems in 1926. He was busy fighting off insurrectionists during the Cristero Wars of the 1920s, and focused on ensuring his control over the men he allowed to succeed him to the presidency during the 1930s. Confirmed for the moment in the security of their holdings, the oil companies went back to work. 1930 would see El Aguila discover another of Mexico's great oil fields, Poza Rica. Thanks to improved well-controlled technologies, when the Poza Rica No. 2 well came in at 6,714 feet, it did so in a much less spectacular fashion than Mexico's earlier gushers. Yet the Poza Rica fields have produced almost 2.5 billion barrels of oil to date, far surpassing the productivity of those early fields. Indeed, Poza Rica would become Mexico's most important oil field for the next 20 years and make it the center of Mexican exploration and production activity. To market production from this new field, El Aguila built a 186-mile pipeline with 7,200 feet of climb to move this crude from Poza Rica to Mexico City, where it constructed the first refinery designed to supply domestic Mexican needs, a sign of the growing importance of petroleum to Mexico's economy. By 1936, Poza Rica would be producing more than one-third of Mexico's national production and would be critical for carrying Mexico through their great upcoming nationalization project. But the oil company's decade-long refusal to acknowledge the Mexican government's sovereignty had taken a toll on their public image and further distanced them from a Mexican society that they were already very far removed from. During the revolutionary period, the oil companies had generally adopted neutrality toward the warring factions and taken responsibility for their own security. But this made them increasingly insular, and a parallel, largely American society grew up in these oil field towns within Mexican borders. Oil companies built their own cities with their own schools, their own social clubs, and their own legal systems. American forms of land leasing predominated with bonuses, delay rentals, royalties, and drilling commitments. And management and most skilled positions were drawn from U.S. oil fields rather than from local talent. In 1920, there were 155 companies and 345 sole proprietorships operating oil wells in Mexico, of which 75% were American. 90% of the oil-producing properties were held by foreign interests, and familiar names like the Texas Company, Jersey Standard, Royal Dutch Shell, Gulf, Unical, and Sinclair had a significant presence, though El Aguila and Huasteca remained the largest by far. But in 1919, El Aguila had sold out to Shell. In 1925, Huasteca would sell out to Standard of Indiana. Thus, the arrival of the supermajors further diminished what little local flavor remained of the great Mexican independent oil companies. The 1920s saw a drastic decline in Mexican production as well. Mexico's production had peaked in 1922 at 550,000 barrels per day. But with the collapse in world oil prices and the legal battles surrounding the validity of the oil company's holdings, production declined to barely 90,000 barrels per day by 1930. After 1930, 
Things threatened to get even worse. As the Great Depression took hold and sapped worldwide demand for oil, just as Venezuelan and Iranian discoveries were flooding the markets. All of these factors contributed to a significant reduction in oil field activity and the large cuts to the workforce. So, to summarize where we are in 1930, you have an industry operating in a parallel power structure that essentially refuses to acknowledge the sovereignty of the government around it and prefers foreign laborers to locals and remits most of its profits offshore even as it's reducing activity and opportunities for local labor. You can see why Marxist academics love to write about the rise of the oil workers' movement in this setting. But in my opinion, the Marxist focus on the struggle of a, quote, historically rural society to adapt to the industrial wage model, end quote, makes the oil workers' movement far less relatable than it should be to anyone who has lived through an oil boom. First, let's dispense with the critique of oil companies for walling themselves off from Mexican society. Expats the world over have always segregated themselves. Finding people with whom you can share familiar cultural practices becomes all the more important the further from home you are. Further, Mexico was and is a highly stratified and segregated society. That oil company managers didn't go to mass with their roughnecks wouldn't have raised an eyebrow to anyone in Mexico at the time. And don't forget about the savagery going on all around these oil towns during the years from 1910 to 1920. Neutrality and self-reliance was a logical strategy. Indeed, most of the critiques of the oil business in the 20th century have accused oil companies of far too little neutrality and self-reliance in unstable regions of the world. Also, any account of the birth of the oil workers' movement in Mexico that tries to paint the oil workers as poor peasants without options is dishonest. As I alluded to in the first chapter, if you want to read about outright press gangs and industrial slavery, read about the Hennequin plantations in the Yucatan during the same time period in Turner's Barbarous Mexico. The situation in the Mexican oil field was quite the opposite. The labor problems in the Mexican oil field arose because the pay was quite good. But good pay attracts a certain kind of man, and it attracts a lot of them very quickly. Tampico would grow from 23,500 people in 1910 to 150,000 people in 1921, when the population of sprawling Mexico City was still only 700,000. I can't find the breakdown, but having lived in oil towns throughout my career, I think it's safe to say that the majority of those 150,000 inhabitants of Tampico were men, and a large percentage of those were likely single and ambitious. Because men that seek work in the oil field are not the passive types, and academics do them a disservice when they portray them as such. These are men who leave the comfort of their homes and families to try to advance their lot. They justify their dirty and dangerous work by the opportunities it offers for advancement. But in an environment of plummeting prices and work reductions, as with the 1920s in Mexico, those opportunities for advancement are blocked. And when those same workers whose ambition brought them to the oil field find their drive blocked, they get restless. The better critique of the oil companies, in my opinion, was that they did nothing to develop local labor and give outlet to this ambition. And I think this critique is implicitly validated in how aggressively oil companies would adopt a strategy of developing local labor in other countries after the Mexican oil expropriation. Because it was the lack of locals in oil companies' managerial ranks that would leave them without any allies when the expropriation came about. Like labor movements in other Western countries, the Mexican Oil Workers Union had its roots in Masonic lodges and mutual aid societies, though these were organized primarily around work specialties, like the old guild model. In 1919, the first company-based unions were formed and grew rapidly. These proto-unions were boisterous, democratic, and self-important, and gave outlet to the testosterone and frustrated ambition of oil workers. 
So quickly did they grow that by 1924, El Aguila had to formally recognize their employees' union and enter into a collective bargaining agreement with them. As oil field activity slowed through the 20s, this left oil workers with even more time to engage in union activity and to flex their political muscles outside of their industry, striking occasionally in support of non-oil field workers' issues. The oil workers soon represented the single largest industrial workforce in Mexico, and the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI, would take notice. In the next episode, we'll finally get what we've all been waiting for. Lazaro Cárdenas will storm onto the scene, stare down the great Anglo-American oil companies, and stun the world by expropriating their assets. Mexico will form the first great national oil company, Pemex, and will use oil as a potent unifying force in the curious coalition that would rule Mexico until the end of the 20th century. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or leave feedback. For this episode's suggested reading, I have to recommend Mariano Azuela's Los de Abajo, mentioned earlier in this episode. But read it with a smirking smile throughout, because if you try to read it as high drama and don't get the dark humor that pervades it, you'll be really missing out on a quintessential feature of the Mexican character. Hasta la próxima.